when I first got into real estate, my buddy says, hey, you know, you you, you talk a lot, basically. <laughs> You'd probably be good at negotiating and you should do these, these wholesales. Okay, like, how do I learn that? He's like, well, you can pay this guy. He charges like 10 grand and he's like, it, it works if you do what he says. So I call the guy, pay him 10 grand. And he's like, look, if you do what I say, it'll work. So I follow exactly what he says. 30 days later, I kid you not, 30 days later, I am sitting at a title company doing what's called the double escrow close. Next thing you know, I walk out of the title company, I do a double escrow close and I have a check for $20,000. He got half of it. And I'm like, I can't believe, like I literally felt like I was standing in the parking lot. Like this can't be real. Like, Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, we are excited to have Steve Rosenberg with us today, a commercial airline pilot who after 9-11 realized, hey, this pilot gig may not be secure as I had thought, had hoped, and wanted to take control of his life, put it into his own hands, his own destiny by going into real estate investing. And as I was researching Steve, I recognize he also is a lover of the disc profiles, which we have studied in depth as well. So I know we're going to have so much to talk about. But as always, Steve, if you'll take us into this episode by telling us what is the craziest real estate purchase or transactions you've faced so far? Um, I would say, uh, I, uh, gosh, shit, man. After 20 years of doing this, I, I could be here for an hour just talking about these weird things that happen. Um, I would say one of the most unusual things that, that happened was on a sale of an apartment complex we owned. Um, it was in Houston, Texas, and it was a bit landlocked between, um, it was a C-class property, and it was locked between a church and a school. And this was back, uh, dating myself, this is back 2007, going into 2008 when the meltdown was happening in real estate. And the church ended up buying it for from us cash because they needed a parking lot. So they basically paid full value for an apartment complex. We had to deliver it to them empty. Um, so we basically had to make the leases expire. So they didn't want to be on the news that they were kicking out all these families. And uh, as soon as we sold it, they leveled it. And they paid well into seven figures for a parking lot. And luckily, um, churches pay cash. So if you're ever doing business with a church, it's a good thing because they don't need financing. So we were, as the economy was crashing, me and my business partner were like, shit, is, it, is this going to happen? Like, are these guys going to go forward? And they're like, yeah, we like doesn't affect us. We need the parking lot. And there was the school was on the other side waiting that if the church didn't buy it, the school was going to buy it. So we bought it knowing that we were wedging ourselves into an opportunity um, and they basically, they all just wanted the land. So that was, that was a pretty cool thing to happen. Although then I took that money and bought a whole bunch of shitty houses and almost went bankrupt. So that's another story, but that's, you know, you, you live and learn, but, uh, that was probably the craziest transaction I had when I thought there's no way this is going to go down. And, and it did. So I want to talk about the risk of this scenario. So you bought this property and they want you to deliver it vacant. Did you get, or what were, yeah. what assurances did you have? Like, cause you're taking this multifamily property and you're vacating all the tenants, which is your income source. If they renege right. on the deal, did you guys have some way of like, hey, we just kicked out all of our tenants? Yeah, I mean, we, we had it all, the verbiage, specific performance and stuff in the contract. But they gave us a very large amount of non-refundable option money uh, to hold it. So it, was, it wasn't like a promise, like, hey, guys, let's shake our hands. I mean, this was, we were already signed. They gave us almost six figures just as non-refundable option money. 
you know, it was a C class uh, area that we could have refilled pretty quickly because um, you got to be a little lenient in these types of properties. And so, you know, we were pretty confident it was going to go through. And when we had been talking to them the whole time, we had basically gates that we had to cross. So measurements that we had set into the contract that this has to happen, then we'll do this, then you guys do this. And we kind of crab walked it uh, to the finish line. But yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm not saying they're dishonest or honest, but I don't trust anyone yeah. when it comes to leaving a, a, a large apartment complex empty like that. Um, so yeah, we, we did have some safety measures in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm a man of faith, but I'd still put contracts in place if I was dealing with churches. There's no doubt about that. Trust but verify, man. Trust but verify. That's exactly right. So I'm really fascinated. So you you made this big exit, I'm assuming, on this deal, and then you invested in a lot of homes and almost went bankrupt. So kind of take us through, like give us a 30,000-foot view, an airplane view of of your investing path. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, my path, as you said, it started after 9-11, 2001. Um, I, I had this best job in the world. I was an airline pilot. I was hired at 25 years old, which I was the second youngest person hired uh, by this particular airline. I was flying all over the planet, all over the world. Um, you know, and everyone's telling you, man, you got the best, you're, you're, you're done. Safe, secure, you got a pension, 401k, you're in a union, you're good, man. You're, you're a millionaire, you're set. That's what people are telling me. I, I don't know. I just, I wanted to be a pilot and I was a pilot. 9-11 uh, hit. Uh, I was three and a half years in with the company and 72 hours or so after the towers fell, I got delivered a furlough notice and basically said, hey, you know what? That safe and that secure job that you thought that you had, it was never safe and it was really never secure. And you're going to be on the street with 50,000 other pilots. So good luck. So as you can imagine, you know, all of a sudden the one skill, well, I'm not a very smart guy and I'm not very talented, but the one skill I had, which was flying an airplane was useless. And now you got to go home. You got to tell your wife, I, I don't know what we're going to do. Like I, I, I don't have a skill set for anything else and I'm not the best pilot out there. So I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do at this point. Um, and so I, I started figuring out after, you know, you're scared, you're, you know, I mean, you're, you're obviously the economy's tumbling right now because of nine 11, no one knows what's going to happen. A lot of unsurety in the world. And I'm thinking I've got to change career paths. Like I've got to go from doing this to maybe opening a gym or creating a restaurant or like, I, I don't know. So I started learning about what people did for wealth. Like what, what do people do that make money? I, I didn't know. And everything seemed to be tied back to real estate at some level. Um, at some, a lot, most people that were wealthy on the planet are somehow, some way tied to real estate, owning, renting, leasing, selling, whatever. So I thought, well, shit, that's good enough for me. Uh, so I went to that building uh, with books in it called the library, which <laughs> they don't really probably go to anymore. Now it's YouTube and Facebook. We don't have that back then. And I got a library card and I started renting a book a week. And I read a book a week to learn and consume as much as I could as fast as possible about real estate. Um, and I started learning how to wholesale at the time, do with option contracts and all that. And um, I got very, very good at it. I learned that the best, the wealthiest people on the planet are communicators, not, not doers. And I, I learned how to communicate. I learned how to negotiate. And that became my strong point. Um, I'm not the best with a hammer. I probably shouldn't have a hammer or tool set. Um, everyone in my family will say, don't give him a hammer. And if you need to drive fast, I'm not the guy because I drive slow. But anyways, uh, 
So I started wholesaling and I got really good. And that's how I actually ended up getting enough money to buy an apartment complex. I made that much money doing it. And I, I wanted a partnership with someone. Uh, that's when the church bought that complex. And we decided, hey, the economy's crashing. I already knew how to wholesale. I knew how to negotiate, but the buyers were not there anymore because they couldn't get loans. So we're like, well, shit, why don't we just keep these properties ourselves? Like we're, we know how to get them at a deal. Our mistake was that we got the wrong properties. So we were great at negotiating, but we, we, we took a path of going to low-income properties, different business model. It's not that they don't work. It just didn't work for the business model that we created for ourselves. And so after we had about 20 of these in the first year, we realized why it didn't work. Um, our, our make-ready costs were our average tenancy was about eight months. So there, it was like a revolving door. Our average make-ready cost was three times the amount because when the tenants would leave, because they had shitty credit to begin with, they would take parting gifts with them, like wiring, electrical, appliances, light bulbs, plants. So every time we'd go back to this property, it was like the shell of a property. So our make-ready costs, so on paper, they were great deals. 60% cash on cash return, buy a property for 50 grand, rent it for 900 a month. This is, this is a no-brainer. But we didn't factor in the human side of, of rental properties, which most people don't. And, and the human side, and, the, and that there's a, another conversation, but we had the wrong model, let's just say. And we, as two smart individuals, thought the best way to fix this problem, the only way to fix this problem, is let's double down and buy more of them. <laughs> At the time, it seemed like the smartest idea in the world. Imagine being in a bonfire and throwing a huge gasoline dumpster tank on it and watching it explode in your face and you're shocked that the fire got bigger. Well, next thing you know, now we have about 35 properties and this was a raging inferno and we were like, I can't believe it's not working. It was so bad that my wife actually told me, Steve, you suck at buying houses. If you buy another one, it better be nice because you will be living in it because you don't know what you're doing. But you get tunnel vision, right? You start thinking, I can fix this. I know I can fix this situation. Well, I couldn't fix it. It was horrible. <laughs> I had a lot of bad decisions. Um, and we finally sat down. We kind of had our breaking point. Um, and I, I even wrote a book. I'm a, a published author with a book with my story of all how this happened. And me and my business partner had a rental property one day in the ghetto. Um, and we just got trash all over us from us trashing out a property, trying to save money because we had no more money. And we basically came to that low point that everyone gets to saying, what are we doing? Like, I'm an airline pilot. You are in charge of an IT division. We have shit and trash all over us. What are we, like, what are we doing? Like, this is not what we signed up for. So essentially what we did is we, we sat down and said, okay, we, we need to hand these over to a management company because we got to be done with this. So we knew the, the worst part is we knew what to do because we owned an apartment complex and ran that successfully till we sold it. But and, and I'm sure many of your listeners can, can relate. We were so emotionally attached to the situation. We couldn't remove ourselves to be business owners. We were running scared. And when you're running scared, making an emotional decision is the worst thing you could do. And that's what we were doing. And so when we hand it, we tried to hand it to a management company, but nobody wanted them. They were so bad that the management companies are like, we don't want these things. These are horrible properties. Well, this is 2010, 2009-ish. And nobody could get a loan. The properties were worth less than what we had been into them for. So our only option 
that we could possibly do was to self-manage them. So we sat down and we started plumbing the infrastructure of how we would want to manage our properties. That was what we did. Well, after we stabilized our properties because we ran it like a business, not emotions, um, we started having a bunch of local investors come to us and ask us, hey, you know, you guys are investors. You're fixing your problems. You've got a management company. Could you manage our properties? And at first we're like, hell no, we don't want your shit. We barely fixed our own. I do not want your problems. But then we realized, you know what? Maybe there's a scalability here. Maybe we could scale this as a business. So we went to a business coach and we said, hey, here's what we did. Here's where we're at. And here's what we think we have. What do you think? So he says, well, let me look at it. Come back a week later. So a week later, we go back and we think this guy's going to give us the one word, like the magic bullet that he's going to give us that we're just going to rocket this thing to like millionaire status. We're waiting for like, like we got our pen and paper. We're like, okay, he's going to tell us. We got to write this down. Like, make sure you write it down, both of us. So we have the same word. And when we leave, we're, we're like, we're done. And he says, well, here's the thing, guys. Yes, you have a business. Yes, you have opportunity, scalability, and marketability. You two are not the smartest guys on the planet and you'll be bankrupt in six months because you have no idea how to run a business and you guys are running a business and that's your mistake. So of course we leave like six inches tall because we didn't get the one word that we thought we were going to get and we hire him as our business coach. We stay with that business coach for seven years. During that time, we built the fastest growing property management company in the state of Texas. We scaled it to over a thousand properties in three major cities. 60% of our company was outsourced to virtual assistants in Mexico. And we ended up selling it for well into seven figures to a venture capital firm that I became a vice president with VCs and started learning about venture capital and all that stuff. So there is a silver lining to the story. Um, a lot of emotions, a lot of hard fought battles. Uh, but I know that's a long story to what you asked me, but I just wanted to kind of, kind of give you the whole sweep and we can dissect from there or whatever you guys want from there. But that's, that's how I got into real estate. Those are the mistakes I made. And I mean, shit, man, we made, you name it, it happened to us. I mean, it was almost like, are we on TV? Like, is somebody like punking us? Like every time something happened to us, but those were lessons. And, and I tell people that I wouldn't have become a multimillionaire business owner had I not failed so miserably and had I not almost gone bankrupt. So even though your ego is bruised and even though it sucks, and you have those sleepless nights, those were actually the things that made me millions of dollars because of those days and because of those nights. It's all in how you interpret it and how you react to it after it happens. Absolutely, man, 100%. Thank you so much for sharing that. And in going, going into so much detail, I actually have like 10 questions. So I'm gonna start off with one that's going quite a bit back, unfortunately. But yeah. you said something very important, man. Um, you said your wife literally said, if you buy another one, you better be choosing to live in it because you suck at buying houses. But you continued buying houses. So, I mean, I would just love to know how you were able to navigate that relationship and to keep it flowing um, because that's obviously a pretty firm demand and <laughs> you kept going, brother. Flowing flowing is, a, is, a, is an uh, interesting word. Uh, more like rapids with big rocks and boulders in the flowing water, I would say. But... Um, yeah, you know, it's so as it right, as stupid as it seems, she was doing all the accounting for us. And I would literally slip a HUD statement into a file and be like, okay, like, and she's like, Did you guys buy another house? And I'm like, Oh yeah, we didn't tell you. This one's gonna be the one. This this one's good though, because it's stable. And she would just kind of like 
like she she was looking at the numbers, right? So she was looking at the math. I was looking at the emotions. And I'm like, we're almost there. Like one more. Like, like how many fucking plumbing issues can we have if the house is 30 years old? Like, I don't understand how many pipes can bust, how many electrical breakers come up. Like the house has been there. Like we've got to be running out of problems. It doesn't happen, right? The bigger you get, the problems don't go away. The problems get bigger. You have to get better. And and every time we kept, she was seeing it from a numbers perspective, which was the 100% right way to do it. And the challenge is, is most entrepreneurs, we see a problem, we get tunnel vision and, and we start focusing, like we almost like we grip harder as opposed to just letting go. And we, and you know, again, I kept thinking I can fix it. I can fix it. I just need, I just need, you know, that's, that was my methodology. Like we never want to admit that, that we're wrong. And the, the challenge I heard, learned one of my mentors, I've had a, I've had a lot of mentors since those days. Um, and one of the mentors at the time, he taught me a term, his name is Brad Sugars. And the term was B times do equals half. So the, the, the word B, B E times multiplication D O and then equal sign half B times do equals half. And I really, I, it never made sense to me, but he's like, Steve, if a lot of people think in order to be successful and have that successful life, we have to do whatever it takes. We will work hard as entrepreneurs. We will all work as hard as we can to be successful. But what we're missing is the first part of that equation. And that's what I missed was the B. We have to become successful people first to do successful things, to have a successful business or a successful life or whatever. I was being a poor-minded person. I was being a bad business owner. I was doing bad business owner strategies. So I was having the results of a bad business. And so I, look, I, I coach hundreds of people in real estate and, and business. And I explain to them, if you keep getting the same results, you've got to change one of those two pieces in the equation. And it's normally not the doing part. You have to be the successful person first to do successful things. So I was doing, I was, I was thinking like a, a poor person because I was running scared. So I was doing poor people things and poor people methodology. So I was getting the same results. And I was like, I've just got to barrel down. So it, it finally got to the point, like I said, I mean, I hate to say I ignored it, but I kind of ignored it. And it, it was, it was pretty rough. You know, I mean, luckily I, I was still, I got, you know, I, I ended up getting my job back with the airline. So I was making money. So we'd have to, you know, we'd have to do a cash call and drop five, 10 grand into the properties. Had I not had that, we, for sure, we would have been bankrupt. So it, it wasn't fun. I'll tell you that. And it's, you know, you get that moment of saying, you know what? Like, you're right. Like, you're right. I, 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 I'm way off on this. And it's, it's hard. It's hard on your ego. It's hard to think I've messed this up. Like, I would say one of the first, one of the worst problems, we had a, we had a hurricane roll through Houston. I believe it was Hurricane Ike. And, at the time we had maybe 30, 40 houses and half of our roofs were gone, right? And all of a sudden me and my business partner are driving around, look, going to all these houses, checking on them. And all the like roofs are gone. And I'm like, shit, man. I'm like, God, all these people like they're, you know, we're driving and I'm thinking to myself, all these people like, oh God, like they can't live here in this house. Like, what are they going to do? And then it hit me. Holy shit. If they can't live in the house, they're not going to pay rent. If they don't pay rent, how are we going to pay the mortgages on these 20 properties? We have a problem more than they have a problem. I was thinking, poor them. I started thinking, you know what? Poor me. 
And so it was, a, it was a, again, you have these aha wake up moments. They're not always good aha moments, but these are the self checks in the sleepless nights that I had. You know, a lot of people talk about losing money, being stressful. I, I disagree. It's not the losing of money. It's the sleepless nights and the stress you put on yourself because money, money is something you regenerate, right? Most people have a paycheck or money. They spend their money and two weeks later, three weeks later, a month later, they do a deal and they get their money again. They know they're getting money again at some point. They're never going to not be having more money. They know at some point they will make money, maybe in a different industry, but they will make money again. Totally. But the one thing you don't get back is that time yeah. and that stress. You can't replace that. And that was the thing that was bothering me because- I put us in that position. Like I physically was the one who made these decisions to buy these properties. And now it was on me and I'm not one for blaming. I took ownership. I was responsible. I was like, you know what? I did this. Like I caused this to happen. So it, it sucked. That's let's just say that. What was the breaking point? So tell me like, what was the point where you're like, or was it even a breaking point where you're like, we need a coach? Like how'd you get Yeah. Connected? You know, yeah, it, it's a good question. And I didn't know much about coaches. When I got into real estate, it's interesting. When I first got into real estate, my buddy says, hey, you know, you you, you talk a lot, basically. <laughs> You'd probably be good at negotiating. Mm -hmm. And you should do these these wholesales. It, was, it wasn't even called wholesales back in 2001. I, I don't even know the term. Um, and I'm like, okay, what's that? And he's like, well, you basically negotiate. You get a deal and you, you sell the deal before you own it. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, who who? Like, how do I learn that? He's like, well, you can pay this guy. He charges like 10 grand. And, and I'm like, fuck, 10 grand. That's a lot of money. But I'm like, he's like, it, it works if you do what he says. So I call the guy, pay him 10 grand. And he's like, look, if you do what I say, it'll work. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I just gave you 10 grand. Like, why, why wouldn't I? Like, that was, yeah. now you got to understand, I came from the airline pilot industry. Airline pilots, we do what we're told to do. That's, that's, you know, we don't have the option of saying, well, I don't really want to get in the simulator today. I think I'll go tomorrow. Or, you know, I mean, we... We have, you know, you have an engine failure. We got to deal with these things. So the guy's like, do what I say and it'll work. I'm like, okay. So I follow exactly what he says. 30 days later, I kid you not, 30 days later, I am sitting at a title company doing what's called a double escrow close. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm sitting there with the phone. And every time they asked me a question, I would hand the phone because he was on the phone with me. And I would just hand the phone to them. They would talk to him. They'd go, okay. And they'd give me the phone back. And he'd say, okay, hold on. He's like, they're probably going to ask this. I'm like, yeah, they're asking. God, hand the phone back. Next thing you know, I walk out of the title company. I do a double escrow close and I have a check for $20,000. He got half of it. And I'm like, I can't believe, like, I literally felt like I was standing in the parking lot. Like, this can't be real. Like, I just made $20,000 and I have no idea what I did. And I asked him, I said, man, that's crazy. I said, how, how many, can I keep doing this? And he's like, dude, you can do as many as you want. I'm like, you must make a lot of people wealthy. And he goes, believe it or not, you're one of the few that actually close a deal. I'm like, few that actually sign up with you? He goes, no, no. Of the people that sign up with me, one of, you're one of the few who's actually gone through and done it. I'm like, I don't understand. What do you mean? He goes, you'd be surprised, Steve, how many people are lazy and greedy and they do not do what they're told to do. I'm like, but I paid you 10 grand. He goes, it doesn't matter. So I remembered that. And, and I went on and ended up buying an apartment complex be, because of what, you know, he taught me and other, other people. So I was always big into being coached and being mentored. And I read a lot of books and this business coach that we got, this was the, the start of a long run for my business partner and I, that I probably have invested well over, well over $700,000 in personal development for myself 
in the last probably 15 years um, of, of investing in, in coaching and mentoring for specific things. Now it's made me several million dollars. So, you know, some people may say I'm stupid. I would disagree very, you know, with my bank account as to what, how stupid I am. But I believe that, you know, when you look at people, let, let's just take sports. Okay. Let's use sports as an analogy. If you're a professional athlete, whether you're, you're Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, doesn't matter. You have a coach. You don't get the coach and then get to the pros and stop the coaching. You get more coaches as you become a professional. And more importantly, you practice every single day on your craft. I talk to people in real estate. I'm like, well, how often do you practice your scripts? Oh, I don't like scripts. Okay, well, how often are you coached or mentored? Oh, I don't need to be coached or mentored. Funny, you're a professional and you don't need it, but you've got Michael Jordan who practiced eight hours a day and had five coaches and he needed it. Does that seem odd to you that you are not at Michael Jordan's status and you don't need a coach and you don't practice? So I, I'm a firm believer, whatever, you know, Ed Milet talks about us having an internal thermostat. Wherever we are today, whatever we've done to this point in our life, we're comfortable. We're comfortable with how much we weigh, how much we make, what we do, how many hours we spend. We have a comfort zone. We are not going to get to the next level with the people we hang out with, with the words that we use. We're not going to do it. We have to get to another uncomfortable zone. If you want to become a black belt in martial arts, you don't train with white belts. You train and learn from black belts. If you want to be a pilot and you want to fly a Boeing 777 aircraft like I do, you probably wouldn't hang around with glider pilots telling you how to fly one. It's just, it's just what you need. So whatever got you to where you are in life right now, you are not going to get any further if you don't have someone guiding you, someone helping you. And so when I coach people, I tell people, like, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to make you successful. There's a difference. And you've got to be able to get out of your comfort zone to get to that next level. And I would not be where I am today without a doubt if I wasn't coached. Speaking of coaching, take us into the time. So this coach is cutting you down in a place where your business is failing and vulnerable. Like give us, give us insight, like put us into that room with you. Like what, what is he fixing in your business? What is he fixing in you? You talk about the equation of the be and the do. What is he fixing about you as a person? What is he fixing about the business? Man, I could, uh, it was, well, for me and my business partner, it was basically like couples therapy at some point because we we're always bitching at each other about something because we were the quintessential business owners. I was the visionary. He was the integrator. I was the sales and marketing guy who was out on stages. I toured Australia. I toured the United States being a speaker because we built our business based on the systemization of how airlines run. So if you look at an airline, the way airlines run are very systematized. Not counting this past week with Southwest and everything else, but in general, they run pretty smoothly. Um, but if you look at how airlines run, there's no better system in the world when you really look at how efficient they are for moving people around the world. He was the integrator. So he was the one making sure everything worked and he really was the workhorse of the company. And I always give him credit. You know, we needed each other, but without him, it would have just been a chaotic shit show by me closing a bunch of deals and no systemization for it. So he implemented the company. The one thing that was interesting is when we hired this guy, he knew nothing about real estate. And we kind of thought, well, that's weird. He doesn't know anything about real estate. That was actually, in hindsight, the smartest thing we could do because what he taught us is how to be business owners. And if you look at the core function of any business, I don't care if it's what you do, what I do, what, you know, Delta Airlines, United Airlines, Chevrolet, Doritos, doesn't matter. 
You have marketing makes the phone ring. Sales answers the phone, converts them to clients. Operations processes the transaction. They get them to ring the cash register and get a repeat customer and get referrals. Accounting pays everybody and leadership oversees it all. And each one of those positions has a job description, role, duty, KPI, which is a key performance indicator, and a disk profile associated with it. So we learned how to build a business. And so when we were talking to other management companies, they're like, oh, are you those two guys from Texas? And we're like, fuck, I don't know. We're, we are two guys from Texas. They're like the guys that have this like exploding business. And we're like, they're like, how are you doing it? And, and I, I will tell you, I think one of the main things that I learned was we didn't look at ourselves as property managers. We looked at ourselves as business owners. We just happened to have a business that was property management. The challenge with real estate investors and real estate people is they self-identify as a real estate investor. The real estate itself is four walls and a roof. That's it. It's the business model running inside of those four walls and the roofs that will make that business successful. You could take a business model called Airbnb, called Burr, called long-term, midterm, whatever, whatever the flavor is today that people make up to try to fast track what they're doing. But if the business model is not correct, see, I learned that because we had low-income properties with the wrong business model. The reason this was so ingrained in me is we sold one of those properties. Imagine we bought a property for 50 grand, 50 grand. We just, it was just, it was just a headache. It was just a nightmare of a property. We could never get it leased. It was bad. It was this, it was that. We sell it. We go to closing with money. We actually had to bring money to closing for this fucking property to get rid of it. The guy buying it was happy because he was getting a great deal. We were more happy because it was no longer our problem. I run into that guy about two years later at a real estate event and I knew him and I was like, Hey man, how's that deal? I sold you. And I'm waiting to hear the whole, what a horrible property, this, and that. And he's like, Oh man, that's my best moneymaker. And I'm like, what? I'm like, no, the one I sold you on Mohawk, that property. He's like, dude, that is a gold mine. I'm like, no way. I thought he was messing with it. I'm like, dude, no way. He goes, Steve, you don't understand. He goes, that property has always been a gold mine. You just had the wrong business model in it you didn't understand the type of business model it takes to make that property work. And that was kind of a, a light bulb moment, like, huh. So then I started thinking of all the properties I've driven by over the years that I passed up that I didn't buy 20, 30 years ago because someone said, oh, that only makes a hundred bucks a month. I wouldn't buy that property. Huh, okay, I'm not gonna buy it. Well, now 20 years later with appreciation and all that stuff, you know the math, right? So. The things I've learned from being a business owner is that all businesses are the same. You have to be that successful owner first. So one of the things when I coach people, one of the first things I ask them, and again, this is, I'm a product of the product, right? I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I regurgitate a lot of things that I've learned. So I'll just disclose that. Um, but I put it in a different format. One of the first things I ask people, and I coach business owners, real estate investors, property managers, is... What is the sale date of your business? And they may say to me, Steve, I don't have a sale date. You don't have to sell it. The reason it has to be a saleable asset is that means it's running and operating without your involvement. Because if you don't have, if you have to be there and if you can't walk away from your business for three days, three weeks or three months and it operate without your involvement, you don't own a business, you own a job. And it's probably a very low paying job at that. And nobody wants to buy a job. The more involved you are in your business, the less valuable it is. So the first thing is, is you have to build your business based on systems, 
policies, procedures, checklists, just like an airline, which is what I show people. And it's got to have a sale date. If it doesn't have a sale date, it goes off into never, never land. It's like someday I'll lose weight. Someday I'll stop smoking. That day never comes. So the first thing we do is I make them put a date on it and we reverse engineer it. So I say, okay, they'll say 2028. Okay, what's the revenue of the company? And what's the margins? And how many hours are you spending in the business? Once we know the destination, now we can reverse engineer what they want to do. So if they say, I want to have, you know, $20 million in assets, I want to have a 35% a profit margin, and I want to be working five hours a week. Okay, now we know what it looks like. So what do we do? We need to make an organization chart for the day that the business is a saleable asset. So now we have an organization. And even if you own real estate, it doesn't matter. It's a, look, if you own one properties or you own 50, you own a business. So what we have to do is we've got to take that organization chart of your properties, of your business, whatever you do, and we reverse engineer it. So we have a snapshot today of what your business looks like. And then we take a snapshot of what it looks like the day that it's a saleable asset. Doesn't mean you have to sell it, but it's an asset that could be sold. Now yeah. we know this is where we are. This is where we're going. So what I do from that point is, okay, if you want to have a $20 million well, business, we, and this we go is- into yeah, yeah I'd, like, I'd like to come back to that, but there's some issues that I want to take that you guys solved earlier on that I think are really valuable. First of all, what in the world is that business model that he put on that property that made it profitable? And secondly, you guys had a problem with all the stuff being stripped and stolen out of the properties, which I'm assuming had to resolve itself at some point to make these profitable. Can you talk about those two things? And then we'll come back to the-, the Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know, man. I'm sorry. I go it, off on dude, these tangents and just go down these rabbit holes. So I'm the feel same free way, to stop man. me whenever you, got you want. so much in there. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so- the reason we were running them incorrectly is, again, I was a pilot and he was an IT guy. Now, when you own an apartment complex, you can run it because you have a manager managing the complex, so you can manage the manager. You have economies of scale where everyone is at that one unit, right? So the problem is, though, when you have properties that are scattered all over a city, you don't have one manager managing it, right? And the, it starts, your look, from owning a management company with thousands of properties, I can tell you your problems begin and end with the customer that you put in the property. People say tenant. I call them a customer because if they don't pay, you don't have a business. So they are customers. And so I think it's good to differentiate that. They don't need to rent your place. You need someone to rent your place. Otherwise, you are going out of business. So we can call them tenants if you want to make it easier. But if you put the wrong tenant in and you look at their past, you'll see their future. We were desperate. We were putting the wrong people in the property, expecting a different result. Like, oh, this person's going to change their life. They've been evicted three times. They're a five-time felon. They, but they, they seem pretty good and they had all their shit in the car when they drove up. So they seem like good people. So we're going to give them a rent special and move them in. And three months later, they're gone and they're taking everything. And we're like, wow, that's weird. That didn't work. So first thing we had to do is we had to get stricter on the inbound you put the right tenant in, 95% of your problems go away. So the first thing he did is he got a lot more strict on the inbound. And one thing, one thing he did that we did not do is he did all the rehab make ready and he made the nice house very nice and pretty before anybody moved in. So he basically did a complete gut of the property. We didn't do that. We were like, we'll use the cash flow to fix it when the need comes up. Well, that's like killing yourself with a spoon slowly and slowly and slowly. You're fixing things. Now you're pissing off tenants. So tenants leave. And so, you know, and we're trying to psychologically not lose money as opposed to just taking 
a big chunk of money and doing the rehab and gutting it like we should have done. We were trying to do it as we went. So uh, one mistake that we learned in a lesson is do everything in the front end. Give somebody a good product. We were giving a bad product, so we we're only getting bad clientele or bad customers. Because of that, we were getting the same results that they would pay for. A good client would come in and be like, I'm not renting this place. It's like, oh, but we have a rent special. It's like, I don't give a shit. I'm not renting it. So what would they do? They would go down the street and rent from this other guy who had a good product. So you always got to have a good product. So that was the first thing. So we had the wrong product of delivery and we we're too emotionally charged to get people in. I've learned that having a bad tenant is worse than having no tenant. I would rather a house sit vacant for an extra month or two than put the wrong tenant in. And now I've got to deal with them and eventually get them out because people don't change. We want to change them. We want to give them that ability, but we do it out of selfish reasons because we want money from them. That's not the right way to think that you're going to change someone's habits and patterns. Did that, did that answer the question? Oh, definitely. You answered it super thoroughly. Um, I really want to talk about this business coach a little bit more because yeah. you're struggling, right? You're, you're having a hard time making ends meet. It was horrible. This guy whips you guys into shape and it i don't remember how quickly you said this happened but all of a sudden a thousand properties in three cities 60 percent vas you guys are finally running a business you sell it for seven figures that is a hell of a fast track model there um yeah. so i'll just ask it this way because you also you reiterate that you're a business owner now and i think that's a very important concept that you keep talking about um, and you put this in the pre-show notes. So I'm just going to ask you this question because I think you're going to have the perfect answer. Like you said, don't be a boss, be a business owner. What do you mean by that statement? Yeah. So, you know, think about it. The biggest reason people fail is ego and pride, right? Most of the time people think like I own the business. I own it. It's me. Everybody get out of my way. So you are dumb. I created this business, so I'm going to do it. That's being a boss. A business owner owns the systems. When you own the systems, I don't want to say people are replaceable, but they're not holding the keys to the castle. <clears throat> Again, we'll go back to us building our business of what we're doing. And, and I'll, I'll finish this one thing and I'm going to explain this to you in a second, how we're able to scale the way we were, which is why we are attracted by venture capital um, is, you know, when we decided us exiting, when, when I coach people on exiting and let's say, for example, th this whole thing, $20 million. Well, here's the biggest challenge. What, what people make the mistake of, of these owners that, that are running a, a, a business is if you are making, let's say, you're, let's say your company is doing 50000 a year in revenue, but you have these dreams of becoming a $20 million company. If you do not act and become a $20 million CEO mentally first, you will never grow a company to $20 million. You will grow it to the law of the lid, which is where you're at. The vernacular, the words you use, the actions you take, the, the habits that you form, the business model you create, that's the level it will grow to. So if you talk to people, you have to imagine you're a $20 million CEO first. Many people go, oh, when I build a, a multi-million dollar business, then I'll act like a multi-million dollar CEO. 
it doesn't happen. You, you, you don't, it doesn't go that way. You've got to become that person first and you have to build it first. So when it comes to building the business, what we did when we were building it, we knew that one of our biggest challenges, see in property management, we don't sell anything except service. So when you sell service, that's a lot of staffing. So we have to look at it from a business owner's perspective of how many staff hours per client does it take? The bigger you get, it doesn't, you know, you don't want it. You don't want to keep staffing up because you'll never get to that profitability margin. So at the time we had our, our payroll to revenue was about 59%. When, once we started learning how to use, utilize the power of virtual assistants, we got it down to 31%. Well, when you're doing several million dollars a year in revenue, that's all profit margin. We got so good that we actually went down to Mexico and formed our own company down there to actually place virtual assistance for other people because we started understanding disc profile, right person, right seat. So if you look at going back to the organization chart, if you look at every role in a company, there's a certain disc personality associated with that role. And if you're very, very detailed in what that person's doing and what their disc is, you can, it doesn't matter if they're next door to you down the street or in another country, the company is run based on data and metrics, not on emotions. So our key performance indicators or our metrics are what determined if somebody was doing their job or not. So we are so good at putting right people in the right seats based on their disc job description and all these other things. When, when this venture capital firm came, they were like, how are you guys doing this? Like, how, how do you guys have so many? I mean, I think we had 25 employees in Mexico, and they're like, how are you guys doing this? Like, we've never seen this before. And we're like, well, this is kind of how the airlines run. Think, think about, I'm sure you guys have flown on an airplane. You pull up, you go to the, you see an airplane coming to a gate. Plane I fly is a Boeing 777. It holds 380 people, and it weighs about 700,000 pounds. When this thing comes, it's like an apartment complex with wings coming up to the gate. Well, once it gets to the gate, you see 300 people getting off the aircraft. You see all of their bags and all the cargo getting offloaded. You've got maintenance doing all their safety checks. You've got the cleaners cleaning the airplane. Flight attendants doing their job. Pilots, we're up front. We're checking safety of flight items, the route. We're loading flight computers. The fueler hooks up the fuel line. So this plane, it holds about 230,000 pounds of fuel. And... Passengers are now replaning the aircraft, bags are getting reloaded, and in within one hour, one hour, that plane is loaded up, doors are closed, and we're pushing back, and not one person has had to talk to anyone else to do their job. Think about that. That is a system. So we started going, why couldn't we do that in our business? I'm like, it can be done. I mean, look, this happens every second of the day somewhere in the world, there's a plane pushing back. And it's all exactly the same because it's a systems dependent company, not people dependent. I don't have to talk to the fueler, but I've got a system in place to make sure the fueler gives me enough fuel because if he doesn't do his job and give me the right amount of fuel, it doesn't matter. We're not going to make our destination. So we started thinking like, how can we run our company that way? We can run it based on systems and procedures. The reason most entrepreneurs fail is they keep it in their heads. They don't document it. They don't put it on paper because then they ask themselves, well, if they're all doing my job, what do I do? And so what happens is they start self-sabotaging themselves to go back into the business and screw everything up. So if you could run your business the way we did and the way I teach people through systems and structure, you can actually go off and do the things you should be doing 
which is growing the business, finding money, doing all the things, or just spending time enjoying your life and not being in the business messing it up. Yeah. So that's the methodology. Love it. Give Tim and I and our audience a coaching session real quick. And let's, let's tailor this to newer investors and the systems that they want to put in place. A lot of the times I think the heartburn and the rub is the newer investor is, is the amount of time spent growing the business because you need revenue coming in at front because you got nothing going on and then building systems. And it feels like systems might take away from building revenue. Can you talk about the balance of a new person getting started and what that looks like balancing revenue generation? Yeah, and systems? yeah that's kind of my jam, right? Um, okay, so... First of all, I don't believe in balance. Let's just start with that. There's no such thing as balance. If you want to be successful, you've got to be hard pushed and then you have to pivot. So I, I believe in three things, health, wealth, and relationships. It's like a three-legged stool. If you don't balance all three of those, meaning all of them being equal, it's, it's, you're, you're on a, you're on a, uh, you're in flying. We call it coffin's corner. Like you're going to go down, right? You'll, you'll, it'll just take you to the crash site quicker, basically. So I don't believe in balance. You don't want me having a, a phone conversation with my wife while I'm landing a Boeing 777 aircraft, would you? But I'm going to go, but guys, I'm balanced. I'm being balanced in my life. You're going to go, no, focus, finish, and then pivot. So I'm a big believer in those things, number one. So when you're doing something, you focus on it. You finish it and then pivot to the next thing. So that's the number one thing. Mo many people think they have to multitask, which we all know there's no such thing. It's actually alternative tasking. And if you're doing more than one thing, you're not doing any of them good. Do one thing, finish it, and move on. So that's the first thing. Second thing is there's three things that it takes to make a business successful. Again, real estate, it does not matter. No one is, everybody thinks they're special. Well, I do real estate. You know what? No one gives a shit. It's just a business. You're just using real estate as the vehicle to get you to where you want to go. It, it doesn't matter if it's stocks, pizza. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. So the three things that you need to understand to make your business successful is number one, monetization. Number two is systemization. And number three is scalability. So I can break those down if you want. So monetization is sales and marketing. Marketing makes the phone ring. Sales answers the phone. So the first thing in marketing is who are you marketing to? Who are your target clients? What I suggest most people to do is identify who is it now, if they're brand new and they haven't done any deals, it's going to be harder for them. But who are they going to go after? Not everyone is your target. There's going to be a certain age, a certain gender, a certain demographic, a certain geographic. And most importantly, the last thing is what problem are you solving for this person to make them pick up the phone and say, I'd like to talk to you. If you are not solving a problem, no transaction is ever going to happen. If I'm hungry, I go into McDonald's, they're solving a problem. If I need a place to live, I talk to a landlord to rent a place. You're solving a problem. The question is, is are you solving the problem to the right people? Now, people that have been doing this for a little while, I recommend you grading your owners. And I teach people how to grade their clients. So grading their clients of who they've done business with or their renters, A through D. It's kind of a long conversation, but it's basically grading them to who you want to do business with and finding out what is the common thread between your top clients. What is their age? What is their gender? What is their demographics? What are they engineers? Are they attorneys? Like, who do you do the best business with? And most importantly, what problem did you solve for them? So that's just making the phone ring. The next step is sales. When the phone does, I say phone, I'm old, right? Internet, whatever you want to call it, contact form. Once that phone rings, 
What do you say to them? How many times does the phone actually ring before you answer it? When you answer it, what do you say? What is the script that you practice and you know verbatim without even thinking that it works? And what is the steps in the sales process? 80% of all sales happen between step five and step 12. Most people don't even go past step three. They don't even call the person back. They call them once or twice. They're like, oh, they didn't answer. Dude, between five and 12 times is when 80% of all transactions happen. So what is the sales? Most sales step processes are about 22 steps or they should be. Now, once they get to, once they become a client or they're going to say, yes, I want to do it. They feel that their money has the value enough to give it to you to get back whatever you're offering. So whether you're buying their house, selling their house, whatever it is, renting, they are going to part with their money because they see value. People buy on emotion and they back it up with logic. So what emotional reason are you giving them to want to do business with you based on them being your target client? Once they become your target client, now we go into step two, which is systemization. This is now the definition of a business as I was taught by my mentor is a commercial profitable enterprise that runs without you and has a sale date. So if we break that down, commercial profitable enterprises, sales and marketing, it's got to make money. Monetization is vital for all businesses. If you are not focusing on making money, you're going out of business. You just don't realize it yet. Most people that are entrepreneurs, they get so caught up in making the best burger, but they don't know how to get it out to the market. McDonald's doesn't make the best burger. They have the best marketing machine. So you've got to focus on sales and marketing first. If you said, Steve, what's the best thing to focus on? Sales and marketing. Nobody gives a shit if you have the best system in the world, if you've got no clients lined up to use it. So I believe sales and marketing, first eight or nine months of your business, that would be my main focus. Then systemization. Every business in general has about eight to 11 systems in place. So when I'm coaching people, I start breaking down their systems. We all have them. Property management had about 19. Most are about eight to 11. What are they, right? Getting, looking for a deal, getting a deal, doing the rehab, getting a tenant in. These are all systems, right? These are, these are flows. These are flow charts. You got to systematize it. And then you got to look at it and go, okay, is there any redundancy? Can we systemize it? Can we automate it? Or can we outsource any of these things that are going on? So that's kind of the second part. So systemization is vital for sustainability of your business. Last thing is scalability. If you get hit by a car tomorrow, which I hope you don't, but if you get hit by a car tomorrow, could I step into your business, <clears throat> sit down at the desk and do the job without ever having to talk to you based on a systems manual and fill out my, my metrics or my KPIs so that you know I'm doing my job? Because if not, how do you know I'm doing a good job or not? <clears throat> I don't like Matt. He's kind of a dick today. I don't think I'm going to, I think I'm going to fire him. Is he doing his job or not? I don't care what you think about him. What are his metrics? I need to see what his numbers are. We don't have metrics. Well, you can't fire the guy until you know if he's doing his job. His metrics tell you that. So every business and every position in the organization chart needs to have a metric. And there needs to be a training syllabus of how to train that position. Most of the time, the reason people don't grow is they don't get it out of their head. They don't make a training module. So they don't get people to replace them. So what do we do? We have a problem employee, but we choose to ignore it right? Because we're like, it's more hassle to deal with this person and figure out what they've been doing. I'm just going to let it go. And maybe when you have one or two employees, that's, that's okay. And you're willing to deal with it. It's never okay, but you may think it's okay. The problem is, is as you get more employees, that toxicity 
creeps into the culture of a company. And it's much, much harder to clean out that toxic culture than it is than to just fire the person immediately. And again, you don't fire them based on opinions. You fire them based on metrics or promote them, whatever the case may be. You may have the wrong person in the right in the wrong seat. Whenever I've looked at bad culture, when I've gone into companies and I, and I see the problems, the biggest problem is leadership. There's a leadership issue normally. You look at bad employees, the fish stinks from the head down. It's bad. They either weren't trained correctly. They didn't see the vision. They don't have the tools that they need. It's a leadership issue. And so a lot of leaders lead by abdication, meaning they, they sit there and they give them all the stuff and they just hope and pray that they're going to fix it and it's going to be okay. And then they come back and they're like, well, man, you didn't even do any of the things. It's like, you didn't give me any tools to succeed. Sorry, did that answer it? <laughs> oh, it absolutely did. And it actually tied right back into something you said earlier that I wanted to dive into, but I felt like it was too far away, but I think it fits now. Like you had mentioned near the very beginning, you said communicators, not doers, are the wealthiest people in the world. Could you expand on that statement a little bit? I think you just touched on it, but dive deeper. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, everything we do, what, you, what we're doing right now, we're communicating, right? The most successful people on the planet are not the hardest workers in the room. If that were the case, construction workers and day laborers would be the wealthiest people, but they're not. It's the ones who communicate. Look at any position, all the business owners. They're not, the business owners are not normally, if they're doing it correctly, right? You look at Elon Musk and all these people. If they're doing it correctly, they're not working the hardest. The, they have the most leverage. Businesses are successful because of leverage. Your ability to, all of this is about relationships, right? So on a, on a subconscious level, you're going to do business with me or you're going to have me on the show or you're going to have me back because you like me, because we established rapport. That's, that's some NLP stuff and some other things, but we're communicating. If we didn't get along and I was just like, dude, I got to hurry up, man. I got shit to do. I got to, I got to, I got to build a wall. I got to build a wall. Well, that that's, I can only build one wall a day, but I could do five podcasts a day and get out to millions of people. It's all about communication. Business is personal. It's relationship. It is not about how hard you work. People have it wrong. We were taught as kids, or I was, you know, work hard, you'll be successful. The harder you work, the more successful you be. But we all know people who work hard their whole lives and they never find success. So we know it's a lie. We, we, we tell ourselves that lie because we don't know what we should do with our day. We don't take time. I've asked people, you know, what's the biggest fear people have? Death and speaking in front of large audiences. But the ones who do it, and I've been paid thousands of dollars many thousands of dollars to speak in front of large audiences because I'm able to communicate to get my point across. I don't need to be smarter than you. I don't need to work harder than you. I just need to be able to communicate and convey who I am and what I do to get you to believe in what I'm saying and what I'm thinking and how I act. So to me that, and I've learned, I've seen it. I mean, I've seen people, I'm, I'm friends with a, a guy named Brad Lee, right? I was talking to Brad. He's like, dude, I'm getting 50 grand a, a speaking session. I'm like, no shit. He's like, yeah. He's like, Ed gets 50 to 100. Jocko gets a buck 50. Jocko is a Navy SEAL. He's making a buck 50 every time he speaks or 100 to 150. He was a hard worker as a SEAL. He's making much more. So, I mean, you do the math, right? So that's, that's my interpretation. I could be way off. You could say, Steve, business owners make the best. Maybe that's true. But those business owners have to communicate their vision to the team to see what they're building in order to build it. 
I have never once, and I don't know if you have, I've never once met a successful person that says the reason I am successful is because I did it all myself. I've never met that person. They all have a team. And in order for you to be a good leader, when you build a business is you have to be able to instill your vision in the people that are following you. Leaders have followers. They follow you because they believe in what you're doing. After your paycheck is paid and your primal needs are met by rent or whatever, now you're there because you want to feel like you're making a difference. You want to feel like you're worth something. And that is following a leader. And that's the leader communicating of the vision of the company and what you're doing. Oh, Steve, what a tremendous answer, man. I, <laughs> I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Um, but, I mean, unfortunately, we both have other things to do today. So, um, Steve, I know you just had a seven-figure exit, and you are now working for the VC firm. So I'm sure you're No, you're not anymore. Of, not anymore. Oh, you're not? Okay, yeah. not anymore. Yeah. Well, you, well, you had a run-in with them, at least. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I still got so, stock. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay with them. You're doing okay. That's awesome, man. So let's just say you had a billion dollars and 100 lifetimes of cash flow. What would you be doing with your free time? You know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'd probably be doing what I do now, which is anything I want. <laughs> uh, I mean, to be honest, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I, and, and there, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this back a different way. And the only reason I'm going to do that is, is I talk a lot about this. Oh, Rocky it's go time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so a lot of times when people become entrepreneurs and they think, when I get this money, when I get this, then I will have this. And a lot of times people relate money to freedom. And I, and I mm-hmm. ask owners all the time. I ask business people, real estate people, why are you doing this? I want freedom. I want freedom. I disagree with that statement. And the reason I disagree with that statement is you could sell all your shit tomorrow and go live in the park in your car and have all the freedom you want. But what you won't like is the memories that that freedom created for you. The, the money you make gives you the freedom. And if you take it one step further to buy the memories that you want to have. So I would buy memories, more memories. One of my mentors told me, he said, Steve, you know what? You're going to be very wealthy one day. He said, you're going to buy all the cool shit, the houses, the cars, the watches, toys. He says, you're going to have all that. He goes, buy memories. Don't just buy shit. He said, you're going to want a bigger car. You're going to want a nice car. He goes, but dinner in Greece on the Mediterranean, going to safari in Africa, seeing the Rolling Stones in Wembley Stadium front row, that's what you want to buy. Buy memories. So to answer your question, I would buy more memories because we, freedom is not tangible. We can't take that with us. And when we go, to, when we, you know, go made our, meet our maker, or go in the ground, whatever, whatever you believe in, the only thing we can take with us is the memories that we had. That's it. So to answer your question, I would buy as many memories as I could. And I buy memories all the time. That's what we do with our money. We really buy memories. We just wrap it up in a, in a, in a tangible thing. But I would buy more memories. Dude, I love that answer. You totally took that in a totally different direction than, than just about everybody we've asked it to so far. Um, that is a tremendous answer, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think you're absolutely right about that because you're building memories for yourself, but not only that, but your family, your your team, yeah. everybody. Yeah. Um, as you said, communication and relationships, they're the key to life in general. Yeah. Um, so cool, man. Um, Steve, what is your 
vision for the next year? Like, what are you working on in 2023, man? You got two days. Um, so probably 2023, I'm doing a lot of coaching. I'm doing a lot of, of working with investors and business owners and operators. And I'm doing a lot of that right now. So 2023 is really tied up with a lot of those things. Um, expanding my coaching programs, expanding my speaking platforms. Um, I'm doing some stuff with, 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 like I said, Bradley and some other people. I've got a video education platform for real estate investors and business owners. So that's kind of the, the main things I'm doing. Um, that I would say that's kind of my focus probably is just dial that business model in as best I can. Absolutely tremendous, man. I mean, I'm excited to see where you take it. We will have access to all the links and everything that the audience will need in the show notes below. Steve Rosenberg, man, you were an absolute rock star, man. I mean, you literally built a seven-figure business in what seems like a couple weeks. That is extremely impressive. I'm sure it took a lot longer than a couple weeks, but the timeline moved extremely rapidly. So just I, absolutely thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, we got a new formula for you. This is better than the mass energy equivalence formula. Step aside, Einstein. We have B times do equals have. So start with the B, focus on getting better, become somebody that is worth $20 million, and then do more, and you will have everything that you ever want in life. Freedom is simply acquired one action at a time. So take massive action, focus, finish, and pivot. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one.